welcome back once again for our third episode of our European Parliament in ASEAN podcast, Muscherawa Connecting ASEAN and Europe. I'm your host, Frederick Liem from Singapore. And I'm your co-host, Amalina Anwar. And Fred and I are actually both here with the Centre for Multilateralism Studies here at NTU's RSIS, which conducts research, postgraduate teaching, capacity building training, and networking on political security and economic multilateralism. And on today's episode, in light of the recent International Women's Day that just passed, we will be talking about the importance of a gender equality perspective, particularly when it comes to trade. So really going into how trade can contribute to women's empowerment and how trade agreements and policies should be designed to ensure that both women and men can enjoy its benefits. And to help us unpack this specific gender trade nexus, we have with us two very excellent distinguished guests. We have uh, from Brunei, not too far from Singapore, where we are sitting here, uh, YB Nick Hafimi Abdul Hadi, who is a uh, member of parliament of the Brunei Legislative Council. And she's also a member of the APEC Business Leaders Advisory Council. And dialing in from Europe, Far away from us, Ms. Katerina Rinzima. She is an MEP in the European Parliament from uh, the Netherlands. She's with the Dutch uh, Liberals. Uh, and uh, she's also a um, member of the European Parliament's Committee on International Trade. YB Afimi, Ms. Rinzima, a warm welcome to both of you. Good afternoon, Fred and Amalina. Um, and also greetings to my fellow parliamentarian in, uh, in the EP. Uh, very good morning to you. Good morning, um, all people from around the world who will start listening, but also a very um, warm uh, welcome because it's sunny today in Brussels uh, and greeting uh, to uh, my colleague in Brunei and also to Amalina and Fred. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. For listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with the subject, could you both perhaps begin by explaining why having a gender equality perspective is important? How does it change how we approach policies overall and perhaps trade policy more specifically? Um, I guess as, as a legislative council member and also somebody who sits on business councils, the, the purpose of inclusion in all aspects of economic development and economic growth is crucial to ensure enhancement. Uh, that's, that's probably the first and foremost line principle. The second item is obviously the fact that not all economies and not all countries are created equal in their policy approaches, especially when it deals with gender. So I guess the, this, this topic and this issue is crucially important because we want to pave the way ahead um, as part of recovery after COVID. So I think that's probably the, the for, for the angle that I'm probably looking at is probably more on that um, as opposed to a, a male-female diaspora. I think that women face a lot of challenges in their lives, whether it comes from an economic uh, or a social point of view. And if we mainstream gender aspects in trade, um, I think we can really benefit women um, because we can give more visibility of the pr problems that women face and also possible solutions to resolve those issues that all stages, levels, subdivisions were relevant. And these problems can include, for example, cases of corruption or unnecessary non-tariff barriers. And when it comes to the trade agreements, I think it's very important that we have a special gender lens to look at what women are doing, especially in the Asian countries. There are many women who face difficulties when it comes to access to finance of their uh, micro, small um, 
businesses or their small businesses. So I think uh, we should have done this already a long time ago, but uh, um, we're going to have better, uh, better possibilities in the future to do so. As we've heard, uh, having a gender equality perspective is really important in policymaking. And part of uh, what makes uh, this uh, gender equality perspective a bit more prominent is having more inclusivity and having alliances. So I suppose just uh, if you could explain to the audience, how can more women be brought into the policymaking space? And in what ways can a man or maybe even other genders become better allies in the fight for gender equality? If I take it from the perspective of, of a parliamentarian within the region, um, I just want to stress that gender equality has always been a central issue um, within ASEAN, especially within the ASEAN Interparliamentary Assembly. Um, and, and the discussion which has circled uh, in ensuring gender equality and women's empowerment has always really been through economic participation, social protection, and equal opportunity, uh, eliminating discrimination, and violence against women and children, women's work, migrant worker rights, and inclusive inclusiveness of women and, and girls. That's, you know, uh, some of what is, is, is being done. The second part is the, the fact that um, within the ASEAN Inter Interparliamentary Assembly, that the, it is mandated. It is recognized that the, the pathways that the ASEAN Interparliamentary um, Union works in itself it really supports the objectives of an ASEAN community of 2025 um, and also allows us to head towards the sustainable development goals. Um, one, one area that uh, I guess for Brunei that we have uh, broadly championed, especially during our host year last year, uh, for ASEAN and for IPA um, in the General Assembly is the fact that we find, we feel that uh, digitalization is perhaps one denominator uh, that can take extra step forward to, to a, a more gender inclusive, a gender blind and a more inclusive approach um, to economic empowerment, if, if that's the, the crux that you're getting at. But albeit, albeit being said, it's not as easy as, as, they, as they make it sound uh, because there are also all these other hurdles, and I can, I can see Catherine nodding along there, that, uh, that really come into play once you actually try and open that particular box. So, so essentially, I think the, the principles of allowing um, discussion is, is, is crucially important. Having a platform for, for not just women, but also men, and, and you know, to, to have a, a proper conversation, an open conversation, because that's always the first step. And with that, along comes the solutions. Um, having both the inclusivity of not just the governmental sector, but also the, the, the sector and civil society groups, um, is another part of the equation that, that needs to, to, to come into play. I agree with you on the data. I think it's very important that we have more gender disintegrated data that need to be collected in order for us to understand how trade can actually benefit women. The European Commission has collected valuable data in other areas such as the sustainable development in general through the TSD chapters, um, though more data are really needed on the impact of trade on women. So I believe these TSD chapters are a good starting point, but more is needed for the gender component. This would include also specific chapters on gender and trade in FTAs because they can give the opportunity to collect valuable information for future initiatives to improve these conditions for women in trade. 
Because what we've seen in the past is that when we focus on specific areas like facilitating trade for SMEs, digitalization, e-commerce, it can be particularly advantageous uh, to women and therefore increase also the need to include um, these chapters in all the EU's free, uh, free trade agreements. Coming to the question of how we can work together, I think when it comes to collecting this data, we cannot do it alone, of course. So the EU can pursue and intensify its cooperation within international organizations and fora, such as the WTO, to share methods and best practices and procedures for the collection of this data and also for the inclusion of a gender perspective. So I think that the EU in this context uh, works to remove these barriers for women's economic empowerment increase their participation in trade but as was already stated we cannot do it alone so we would really need a lot of cooperation and a coalition of willing especially with the focus on data thank you so much you've you've just given me an excellent segue into my next uh, question really here uh, miss rinzema i was wondering to what extent um uh, these these issues are actually on the eu asean agenda gender equality does it actually feature on the EU ASEAN cooperation uh, agenda at all? And if if so, what are some specific uh, cooperation areas where this has popped up? I guess that's a question for both of you. And now I start in reverse order and put it to Miss uh, Miss Winsema first. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think at the regional level, the European Commission and the uh, Asian member states are undertaking a stock-taking uh, exercise to explore the prospects towards the resumption of a region-to-region -region negotiation. As you know, joint uh, EU-Asian working group uh, for the development of framework uh, setting out these parameters of a future uh, FTA gathers at a regular basis. I do would like to state that from my political family, so I'm a member of the Liberal family within uh, the European Parliament, we do think that it's important that if we have gender chapters in the FTAs, it's really important that both parties would agree. So um, as you can see that we have the this, this trade agreement negotiations with Chile, where I think on the basis of um, a mutual understanding of that, the fact that this is important will have the most effect. So I would state that it's important, very important to the EU, but I would not go as far as to say that this has to be mandatory in all trade agreements, because I do think that it's important that we have these discussions with each other and move forward, really based on mutual understanding of how important it is to uh, have the gender lens in trade agreements, and not so much as the EU to say, you have to do it, otherwise there is no um, future in the trade agreements with us together. So this is my, my personal point of view and the, and the point of view from the Liberal Party that I serve in the European Parliament. But for me, it's very important to state this. You've actually knocked the, the, the nail on the head, um, to be honest with you, in terms of the approach towards negotiations. Um, for me, myself, I'm not particularly um, as exposed to the EU ASEAN uh, discussions. I'm probably more involved on the APEC and the ASEAN yep. uh, segments of it. Uh, but I think it's crucial whereby there would be a basis of, of at least a basic understanding. Yes. And even if um, items are not specifically um, noted within uh, gender chapters or, or, or within that particular area of ex exclusion or inclusion, there is a, a, a guiding principle for understanding. I think that's probably first and foremost crucial. Um, I just wanted to add on to the point that some of the other information coming through um, that has actually just been published by APEC um, with regards to, it's not just gender in itself, but it's all the supporting services that 
are needed when you consider um, supporting women, women's economic participation, full stop, right? Because it doesn't matter about gender, it's about having the, the support services for both men and women uh, because of the fact that they have social um, duties that they are responsible for, they have family duties that they're responsible for. There are other factors that affect, uh, that, that impact on, on trade negotiations that are sort of not really transparent to us, but we have to take that into account because it affects daily life. Um, I think from the approach of where the relationship within the ASEAN and the EU is the fact that the EU can give a lot of very good best case studies um, using a toolkit approach has, has been found to be very, very effective in allowing each country within ASEAN itself, anyhow, to slowly integrate itself towards a, a level that it feels would meet the needs of any type of negotiation between ASEAN and the EU, but at the same time also give, give it a bit of runway because of the various levels of development within each ASEAN country. It gives some runway towards a, a goal that they need to, to aspire to, and at the same time, you know, venture to, to achieve. So I think some of the, the practices that the, the European Parliament and within the European Union they've done, um, within all the various scopes of that, that look at, at things with a gender lens, are slowly being um, not so much under integrated, but at least understood. I, excellent. I, I actually have a, a, a quick follow-up question onto this one for, for Ms. Renzima, specifically because you mentioned the mandatory nature, the possible suggested mandatory nature of, of including gender issues, for, for example, in trade agreements, right? And if, if uh, I, I think you said um, that you don't necessarily support this uh, being, being mandatory. If I recall correctly, there were quite a few voices in the European Parliament that did specifically call for that, I think, very recently, right? Yes. And um, could you please elaborate a bit more on, on for our listeners on, on this one sure. and, and also in your opinion what impact that would actually have for example on trade negotiations yes thank you Fred I think when it comes to trade uh, negotiations uh, of course the EU we have a uh, a huge experience and a huge wealth of how uh, we negotiate our trade agreements. And we do have, a, we keep a very high standard for all our products and services, but also for our values. We should not forget that the, the whole project of the EU is also very value driven and mission driven. At the same time, when we look at the geopolitical uh, world order and situation and also think the seismic change because of the recent developments in Ukraine, I do think that it's very important also to be have a, a realistic outlook of what is possible and a very realistic outlook of who are our allies. And when it comes to the allies of the EU, to me, it's very clear. Those are the people that have the same values as that we do and are achieving um, the same things. So from a very broad perspective, I think we have to look also when we talk about the new geopolitical situation, really talk about what uh, binds us together, what makes us really allies. And yes, Part of that is, of course, sustainable development goals. Part of that is uh, gender equality and equality in the, in the broader sense of, of the world. But I don't want to narrow it down because if we do that, and, and some of my colleagues, you're right, some of my colleagues have been really pushing for that. Perhaps I have a more... 
realpolitik uh, vision of how we should uh, approach things. For me, it's very important when we look at the huge challenges around the world with the supply chain issues, with food scarcity. Um, I think it's very important that we see what is actually possible based on mutual interest and mu mutual values from a very broad perspective. And for me to just narrow it down with a mandatory aspect of this of gender, it for me it cuts out a lot of other interests and aspects that we should also take into account. Uh, when when it comes to trade and gender, I think one of the biggest goals um, is to empower women to better participate in global trade. And I think this is especially like a really huge conversation when it comes to the digital economy, which is growing. So to really Hafimi, I think there are several barriers to women's participation in the digital economy. And one, some of those could be the access to technology and digital skills. So in your opinion, what can be done to overcome the gender digital divide? Not every country has uh, the same access to digitalization, as well as the capacity building that, that, that is required. Uh, but I think within ASEAN itself, if I were to speak from an ASEAN and an APEC perspective, is that the the, the barriers are sort of coming up is, is the fact on um, digital um, literacy. Yes. Digital literacy is yeah. probably one of the first hurdles that you have to overcome. Maybe maybe not so much for the the Gen Zs and the you know the millennial uh, level of it, but definitely the pre. You know you have to take that into account when you look at. Uh, when you take that perspective of digitalization, it's not even a gender issue. I think it's just the fact that depending on, on your in level of interaction uh, with technology will determine how, how easy it is for you to, to go digital. Um, but with that being said, uh, there are a lot of platforms being uh, provided uh, in, in, the, in the marketplace. Number one is from a marketplace perspective. Number two, there is actually a lot of grassroots um, community building that is involved in getting the, the level of digitalization right to the ground. And I think this is not just um, within ASEAN um, alone, but within APEC uh, as, a, as, a, as an economic region. Um, it's, it's quite crucial. It's actually you know, the mainstay of a lot of the thematics of each hosting year now. Um, at the moment, you know that the G20 is, and the B20 is being hosted in Indonesia. Um, and digitalization is a very crucial part of their women's economic empowerment agenda um, for, for, for their, their, their B20 theme. Um, the, the, other, the other aspect of it is I think the, the government policy support has to work hand in glove with what the private sector expects out of digitalization. Like initially you had mentioned global value chains. Global value chains only work provided that you have an end-to-end if you only have a, a start, stop, start, stop, then it doesn't it doesn't provide um, the benefit of digitalization. When you think of digitalization, it has to be something that's on a string. It moves along, um, and and the, and the longer that you can unwind the string, the, the the better you can pull people together. So I hope that that answers to a certain ex uh, extent. But that's in the experience that that I've had uh, so far. Yeah, thank you, YB Hafimi. And for Ms. Renzima, I wonder if I could tack on a question on what. Uh, best practices the EU has or the experience the EU has in closing the gender digital divide, number one. And perhaps the other question is, um, one of the other main challenges is access to finance. Mm. And in the digital economy, this access is increasingly facilitated by technologies and artificial intelligence. But some of these technologies can actually have a pretty uh, significant gender bias. 
So the question is, how do we make the technologies underpinning the digital economy or even the data underpinning the digital economy and trade better serve gender equality? When it comes to digital literacy, I completely agree with my colleague, Ms. Afimi, that we have to do a skills assessment and also be realistic about it. And let me be frank, in my previous jobs, I worked for a reading and writing foundation where we wanted to tackle in the Netherlands, but also in the EU, uh, people who are lacking basic skills when it comes to reading, writing, numeracy, but also digital. So we also have a huge population here in the EU that do not have the uh, levels of digital literacy that we expect them perhaps to have. So this is a global problem and this is also very much a European uh, problem. So what we've done in the EU and in the Netherlands is that we actually have a coalition of willing, of trade unions, of big uh, trade companies, of businesses, uh, working together, not so much with schools, but like really with informal partnerships where people are being trained on the job. Uh, because uh, you also need a skills assessment. I mean, a lot of people, of course, will never will shy away from returning back to school or actually admit that they might have uh, some uh, gaps in their in their digital skills. Um, so, at the, from a personal level, let me first say that this is a global global issue, which we have to um, work on. So, when I think when within trade policy and the gender component of of the policy, access to finance indeed is crucial for especially for the women-led SMEs because they're less likely to have this effective and adequate access to finance. I read a report on from the World Bank that uh, says that more than seventy percent of women-led SMEs in the world have inadequate access to finance. Uh, I also traveled myself extensively in uh, in the Asian region, and I have seen that actually that a lot of women do not have proper access to finance. And without that, they cannot grow their business, um, expand their capital to invest back to their businesses and contribute to the economic growth worldwide. What I think that indeed uh, digitalization could offer many opportunities that we, uh, benefit women in particular. We could think of the use of blockchain um, to make cross-border trade uh, processes more efficiently and less costly. Um, and then also see how we can empower women through these digital technologies. I do think that we're uh, not ahead of the curve. I think we're, we're beginning. And what I've told uh, the EU and the Commission that's working on this, that we should really look at the intersection between policies and programs to make sure that the digital literacy skills and the financial skills can fully realize its potential. So if we want to do that, we have to tackle two problems at one, making sure that women have access to digital solutions and at the same time develop their skills to benefit from these technologies in their businesses. Thank you very much uh, to both of you. We are almost at the end of, of our conversation here, but uh, I have realized that this is possibly the first conversation I had where the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, didn't pop up within the first 10 minutes, and I, I cannot let that pass uh, at all. So, so, so perhaps... As a, as a closing question here, uh, let us let us try to see how, how we can bring the COVID-19 pandemic into this. And, and I've, I've long wondered whether the pandemic has actually exacerbated um, existing inequalities rather than being the great equalizer, we used to say at the, at the very beginning of the, the pandemic. And this is perhaps something like the digital access, like YB mentioned earlier, it's, 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 it's not limited to, the, uh, uh, to gender inequalities, but inequalities in general. But this being our topic, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here specifically 
typically about sectors with a very high percentage traditionally of of of, of female workers, right? So we could, for example, think of the garment sector, uh, tourism, uh, but uh, many more, of course. So have you noticed this that the, the a pandemic effect on on gender inequality in in your region or or in your in your foreign policy work you you've been doing? Perhaps I start with YB, uh, uh, YB Hafimi first uh, this time. Uh, definitely, Fred. I think um, when when you speak about the effects of the pandemic, especially on gender, um, it's really it really comes down to the social responsibilities within the culture that you live in. Um, obviously, within the Asian culture, uh, the the family is always at the core. So, what you found is that um, we we have women who have not not only do they have to manage their jobs, they also have to manage the the work from home. The stay-at-home study, the 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 online learning, you know. So instead of having two arms, they've suddenly had to become octopus and having multiple screens and multiple arms just to keep uh, children in check and food on the table. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I think this is this. It's not just to our region. I think it happens everywhere. Yes. Um, whether or not uh, employee employers are adaptable to what what is going on because of of what has happened with. With the work from home format and with uh, the other, the more the more pertinent responsibilities of of, of being a family um, have have always have always basically brought these these surface uh, these questions to the surface. So I think that's that's one aspect of sort of our social approach to to responsibility, and not just as an employee but as an employer. How do you find that balance? Um, so there's a little bit of, of of leverage. Some some families may see say it's the other way around. Um, they've actually, you know, had a better quality time with not just the spouse, but actually having family quality time because uh, they're sort of stuck at home and finding other things to do and 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 reuniting as a family. Uh, that's a social aspect. I think the 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 bit that has been, I wouldn't say the game changer, but the game equal equalizer is the fact that digitalization and the acceleration of adapting digital uh, digital usage of and digital tools within our workplace has totally changed the concept of how we're going to approach uh, the, the future of work. I think that's something that's very, very important, and it's something that uh, policymakers cannot ignore. It is definitely something that trade negotiation cannot ignore either, uh, because you, you are already changing. And I, and I picked up on the point that, uh, that my colleague, Katharina, had mentioned, is the fact that when you're doing skilling, um, we are all learning as we go. There is no such thing as my my 12, 12 years of high school and how many years of university. Uh, we are all learning every single every single day. Every so so the this whole concept of lifelong learning has basically taken center stage uh, for everything that we're trying to do. So hopefully that that uh, answers the, the the angle that you're thinking. You're right. It has been um, also for me personally. I thought that this would be the huge game changer when it comes to uh, equality, uh, because all of a sudden I was working full time at home from my, behind my laptop. My husband was there. We had our our, our seven month old, wa well, not walking but uh, crawling around. And here I thought, okay, this this might be the the huge game changer that we've been waiting on for a long time. Unfortunately, it's not been. I, uh, from a personal point of view, but also when I look around and when you read all the studies you can see that really women took a lot of the burden of doing both the household and work and everything and, and taking care of family and vulnerable people around them so 
So as uh, as my colleague said, uh, we really turn into uh, octopuses. Um, I looked recently into in the data, and I think thankfully that um, female participation in the workforce has recovered, but there's still much ground to cover. Also, uh, in some countries, that female employment has actually been going up, and it has been rising faster than the male employment. Um, but of course, this is not the case in in all countries. Um, what I do think that is important to state is that uh, when it comes to certain sectors of the economy, such as tourism, hospitality, food services, and personal care, um, they are yet to bounce back to the pre-pandemic levels of output because women mostly are concentrated in these sectors. And it's, of course, not surprising that employment gains for women in some countries are still lower than the pandemic level. I really also hope that governments understand that also this aspect is intersectional because when it comes to vaccination, uh, we also must be admit, and it might be a taboo sometimes to mention it, but we are not... Uh, there yet. And of course, the access to vaccinations has also been a huge inequality um, uh, aspect uh, around the world. Um, I've already received uh, my third vaccine and I wish this could be the case for everybody around the world because this is really, um, from a humanity point of view, something that uh, is so important to me personally also. And the slow pace of vaccinations in some countries, also including for children, coupled then with the rise of this new uh, variants of the virus, they may delay, delay the complete reopening of schools, daycare facilities, and of course this is going to weigh on the pace of return to the later labor market for, for, for mothers who gave up their jobs to take care of the children during the pandemic. And also, even if schools and day centers become available, the traditional dynamics of the labor market will slow uh, the return of women. Uh, well, some of them, especially those with children who are unvaccinated, may not prefer to return to work also. So um, I do think that the gender-related roles that are at home, but also the other socioeconomic factors, will really serve as setbacks to the efforts at strengthening gender equality across the world, especially in countries where labor force has traditionally been the bastion of men. So there's much more going on for women than just the employment woes, and I think the disparity of the pandemic's impact on both men and women is evident even outside the labor market. So yes, I would really urge the governments, but also what I'm doing from within the EU, urging the European government to really bridge the gap for families and for women most affected by uh, by the pandemic. I personally have, have learned a lot today, specifically uh, uh, myself, I've benefited a lot because this is something I don't naturally look into. And um, what I take away from it really is that this is really a multi-stakeholder approach, right? Yes. Both of you have, have mentioned that that numerous times. And and while there is some human agency, individ, individual agency, of course, on part of, of, of both females and males, I guess, it still needs a policy framework and policy not only set by governments, especially not mandatory, I take away from this too, but um, uh, in negotiations with all the multi-stakeholders. So I've benefited uh, greatly from this. And uh, pass now the last word and the big thank you on uh, to Amalina here. I want to add that I think what was really great about today's conversation is that it kind of debunks the myth that gender equality is really just about empowering women because mm. I think what the two uh, speakers have really done beautifully today is to highlight that the fight for gender equality is actually the fight for a better quality of life for all genders. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's the positive note that we should end on. 
Okay, wonderful. So, um, uh, YB, YB Hafimi in uh, Brunei uh, with uh, Katharina Rinzema in, in, in Brussels. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate uh, you picking up the phone and, and, and speaking to us. Okay, so right before we wrap up, there's just a little reminder to follow the European Parliament ASEAN at EP in ASEAN on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So the European Parliament ASEAN works to facilitate parliamentary and people-to-people -people links between the European Union and Southeast Asia. And you can also subscribe to their monthly newsletters. If you want to do so, just send an email to epinasean at ep.europa.eu. And before we end this, our third ever episode, uh, I would like to bring this discussion to our a uh, sort of semi-regular feature we are having here on this podcast, what is worth your time. And unfortunately, I must recommend a book, and I say unfortunately because it taps into, um, uh, into a topic that is about the European tragedy currently unfolding in Ukraine. And when it was unfolding, I really tried to understand Vladimir Putin, and uh, I tried to find a few books that um, uh, that would explain Vladimir Putin's thinking, perhaps, uh, to some extent. And I found this excellent book. Uh, it's called Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. Uh, it's by uh, Catherine Belton, and it explains very well the uh, connection between Vladimir Putin and this security establishment and the way the KGB folk, the old KGB folk, are still penetrating the security establishment in Russia and how uh, they think. So I highly recommend that uh, to our listeners uh, in these in these troubling times to perhaps make sense of it a bit. Uh, in our next uh, edition, we will be speaking about the European Union in the Indo-Pacific. As you might know, might know that the European Union has come out with their own uh, Indo-Pacific strategy for cooperation. In fact, the only strategy that has come out in Europe that has the word cooperation in it. Uh, we will speak about uh, this and have uh, another two excellent guests in there. And uh, for today, we're dialing out. I thank you all our listeners for tuning in today. And we are very much looking forward to welcoming you again at the next episode. And until then, stay interested, engaged, happy, vocal, healthy, and well. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>